Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Quartet, the gospel in four movements. That's what we're going to be doing for the next four Sundays. We're going to be looking at the four Gospels. One Gospel for each Sunday. Quartet, the Gospel in four movements. The New Testament opens with four Gospel witnesses to the life of Jesus Christ. And each of these Gospels have their own voice, their own perspective, and their own particular emphasis. The Gospels are not mere biographies. They are, in fact, theologically driven documents. That's very important that you get that. Don't approach the Gospels as a modern person. We're just trying to get some information. No, they have a theological goal, a theological agenda. And so the Gospels do differ in historic detail from one another because the composers are not interested so much in historical detail as they are in theological reflection. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not mere biographers or historians. They are, first of all, theologians. In the second century, a Syrian theologian, a Syrian Christian theologian named Tatian, he he took the four Gospels and created one Gospel. He did what we call harmonizing. That is, he edited the four Gospels into one. Um, This is an interesting thing. Tatian was strangely modern and not in a good way. In a strangely modern way, this second century Syrian theologian wanted a single historic witness of Jesus without any discrepancy. He was embarrassed that some of the details are, there's discrepancies between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on historical details. And he didn't like that, he thought that was embarrassing, so he created, he edited it down to one gospel. But the church, especially led by Irenaeus, the the bishop of Lyon, wisely said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And they rejected this idea of having only one gospel that had been edited so that it was out without any discrepancy. Four distinct theological reflections on the life of Jesus is superior to a single edited gospel. So we have four gospels. Three of the gospels, though, are really quite similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are known in technical terms as the synoptic gospels because they are similar. They're very similar, in fact. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, John is actually quite different. John is very different. Uh, John, the last gospel written is, could we say it? We could say maybe it's much more spiritual. I don't know if that word conveys much. It's, It's definitely much more, even more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, theologically driven. And so John plays around with it. So John 
doesn't have the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry. He has it at the beginning because he has a reason for doing that. And John even puts the crucifixion of Jesus on a different day. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Jesus crucified on the day that the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Um, John moves it because he wants Jesus to be dying on the day. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it the day after. I mean, it's that evening there's a, is, is the sacrifice lamb, and then the next day, on Friday, Jesus is crucified. But John moves the date. Why does he do that? Because uh, he opens his gospel by telling us he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so he wants, you see, he's theologically motivated. If you're a modern person, that might bother you. I'm going to counsel you, don't let it bother you. They are inspired theologians working by the Holy Spirit to give us beautiful messages in different ways that if we will be attuned to what they have to say, we will get much more out of the Gospels than if you just approach it as a mere uh, historian interested in historical detail. So, Mark was the first gospel written, and uh, Matthew and Mark then clearly use, in fact, everything in Mark, almost everything, is also in Matthew and Luke, but then Matthew and Luke add their own material. But Mark is the first gospel written, Matthew and Luke use it as a template for their gospels. So, we're going to start today with Mark. Who was Mark? Who is Mark? Well, it's pretty clear that the, the tradition and the scholarship both agree that it seems to be this, this character known as John Mark, who appears a little bit, barely, in the Gospels, but is rather prominent in the book of Acts. John Mark. He was a young man in the time of Jesus. He was probably in his teens, so he was young. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was younger than them. His mother had a home in Jerusalem. He early on was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas, and then later just with Barnabas. But the church history tells us, and this is pretty well substantiated, that, that ultimately what Mark was was the interpreter for Peter, Peter not being fluent in Greek. And Mark was his interpreter. And it's from Peter that Mark gets what he has to say in his gospel. So in some ways you could think of, you could think of Mark as, as the gospel that's coming to us from Peter. But it's Mark that writes it. It was written in Rome uh, sometime after the death of Peter. Peter died around the year 64. So sometime after that, Mark writes the first gospel, probably around the year 70. Um, the theme in Mark... The key word, anyway, is immediately. The word appears over and over and over again. Immediately, 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 immediately. Now, he's writing 40 years after the life of Jesus, but still, this is the first of this kind of document produced, this gospel. And there is a, there is a bracing, breathless pace it, it, you, you can feel the excitement, actually, in Mark, as he, he wants you to know the story. He wants you to know about Jesus. And so there's this excited pace to Mark, and he, he uses that word immediately over and over. And this is just a little detail, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, 150 times, Mark uses a thing called the dramatic present tense. And the, the translators all take it out. The translators view it as maybe 
like he's not doing well. That's a problem. Translators sometimes want to make Mark sound better than it is. Dramatic present tense is a literary device where you are telling a story that happened a long time ago, but you, you, you cast it in the present tense. And so we're on the sea, and, and the waves are growing, and, and Jesus is sleeping in the back. And so we, we're waking him up, and we're, he does it that way. Now, translators then come along and say, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to smooth it out, and we'll put it back in the past tense. But it, it's, it's actually a device to draw you into the excitement of the story. Um, when I write, if I'm telling a story from my life, I often do that. I get carried away, and I'm writing in the present tense, the dramatic present, it's called, and then Perry comes along and corrects it for me. and says, no, you've you got to keep it. And so that's how that works. Okay, that was a meaningless detail, but I think it's interesting. All right, let's, just, let's, look at, let's look at Mark 1.1. In the beginning, no, not in the beginning, the beginning, uh, that's, the, uh, that's John, we'll get there in three more weeks. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, so what is this? This is the first line of the first gospel. First gospel written. So there's, there's, no, there's been no gospels, and this is the beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now you might think, well, you know, okay, that's, that's almost like a title, or it's, it's innocuous, it's harmless, it's sort of bland. Oh, no, it's not. Not if you really understand what's being said here. Um, the beginning of the gospel, euangelion, where we get the word evangelical. That's the word gospel, translated gospel. Yes, it literally means good tidings or good news, but it's, the way it was used, it was really more uh, an, imper- an imperial decree. It's something that comes from Caesar. So the beginning of this imperial decree of Jesus Christ, or King Jesus, the Son of God. Son of God. Son of God was also an imperial title belonging to the Caesar. And remember, he's writing this in Rome. Consider this, this imperial inscription from the, from the year 9 B.C., so just a few years before Jesus was born. It was found in the city of Prini. That's in Turkey or Asia Minor. It was a Roman colony, and they discovered an inscription that was placed there in the year 9 B.C., and it reads like this. The birthday of the god Caesar Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel. Therefore, let all recognize a new era beginning from his birth. All right, it's into this world where there's that kind of language being used, that Caesar Augustus is, well, he's a god because he's the son of God. And he's bringing the gospel to the world. And a new era comes with his birth. That's the dominant thought of the world in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. And so when Mark starts his gospel with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it really sounds more like this. The imperial proclamation of King Jesus, the true Son of God. And remember, he's writing in Rome. He's writing this document. He says, the beginning of the imperial proclamation of King Jesus, the true Son of God. Mark has just thrown down the gauntlet. The opening line is a challenge to Rome and to all the principalities and powers. 
And the emphasis in Mark's gospel is that Jesus is challenging the kingdom of Satan. That's, that's really the dominant theme. That's the thread that goes all the way through the gospel of Mark, that Jesus is challenging the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is the stronger one who will bind the strong man and plunder his house. So there in just the seventh verse of the, of the gospel, John the Baptist is preparing the way. And he says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. John's saying, I'm not the Messiah. The one who is the Messiah, he comes after me and he's mightier than I. Not just, not just more noble, not just more esteemed, but he's more powerful. He's stronger. Later, once Jesus begins his ministry, Jesus will describe his ministry like this. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is casting himself as a home invader. <laughs> and so you imagine, here's a, here's a, it's a mini parable. So you have this guy, he's very strong, he's very powerful, and he's got, he's got goods He's got valuable goods in his house, and his house is completely safe because nobody can mess with this strong man. But now there comes along a stronger than the strong man, and he invades this guy's house. He overpowers him. He ties him up and plunders his valuables. That's Jesus. The idea is that the world has become the house of Satan. And Satan is powerful. And no one can bind this powerful one. And Satan keeps his goods secure. And what are the goods? It's the people. We're all somehow locked up in Satan's house. And we can't get out. And Satan guards his house. And he keeps people in bondage. But Jesus comes and he's the stronger than the strong man. And Jesus invades the house of the strong man, binds the strong man, and plunders his good. That is, sets us free. Carries us off as his own possession. That's a crazy parable. I mean, Jesus is, is casting himself as a violent burglar who goes into a house, ties up the guy, and runs off with his stuff. We're the stuff that Jesus is running off with. All right, so let's look. Let's look at... Uh, the first confrontation, there's a lot of Jesus confronting demons in Mark more than in any other gospel. It's a big theme. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there's that word, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. But see, this is an example of where it's that dramatic present. He enters the synagogue. It's actually told in present tense, but the editors have decided not to let him do that. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. 
And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, actually, guess what the word really is? Immediately, in this translation, it's a case where the editors, the translators are like, he's using that word too much. We're going to try to help him out here. And immediately, his fame spread everywhere throughout, the, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So, Jesus is invading the house of the strong man, Satan, in order to plunder his house. In his ministry, Jesus is displacing, displacing the, the, the kingdom of Satan and the associated principalities and powers. And perhaps surprisingly, the first confrontation occurs in a synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus goes into the synagogue... He's going to preach in the synagogue in Capernaum on a Sabbath. He goes into the synagogue and there is a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And the demon in the synagogue is giving voice to the principalities and powers that Jesus is confronting. In this case, the principalities and powers that Jesus is confronting are the scribal aristocracy uh, that have the synagogue as their power base. Think of synagogues as similar to churches. They're local. They have congregations. They have pastors. The term they used was president, but same idea. I mean, Jesus' church is an adaptation of the synagogue. But what had happened largely in Jesus' day is that instead of the rulers of the synagogue, the the scribal aristocracy, instead of the, the rulers of the synagogue, instead of using the synagogue as a place of healing and lifting burdens and helping people. Instead, it just became the source of their power. And they, they, they ruled over people. And so that the synagogue, instead of being a house of liberty, was becoming a house of bondage. Remember, Jesus will say to them, you load down people with heavy burdens and you won't so much as try to lift it off of them with a finger. And so these people going to synagogue are ending up more burdened than if they didn't. And so what was supposed to be a house of liberation has become a house of bondage. The synagogue leaders were using their position not to help and heal, but to control and dominate. And the coming of Jesus is a confrontation with that demonic spirit of control and abuse in the synagogue. So who is the man with the demon in the synagogue? I can't prove it, but I think it's the synagogue leader. I think it actually it's the president, the synagogue leader, the, the, the scribe in charge of that synagogue in Capernaum. This demonized and abusive leader recognizes that Jesus is a threat to his control. And he says, well, what have we got to do with you? Uh... I know who you are. I know who you are with your messianic claims. The Holy One come from God. Have you come to destroy us? What's the answer to that? Has Jesus come to destroy? Yes, if you understand what the us is. Have you come to destroy us? Jesus says yes, but you have to understand what the us is. Jesus has not come to destroy the man. 
He's come to destroy that spirit. He's come to destroy the spirit, not the man. And so Jesus casts the demon out of this man. And the man is set free. Jesus, well, I mean, John in his first epistle says, For this purpose was the Son of God made manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil, but he doesn't do it by destroying people. The man in the synagogue, whom I believe is the leader of the synagogue, is unharmed. What what has happened is he has been liberated from this wrong attitude, this wrong spirit, this demonic spirit of abuse and control has been cast out of him. And he's been set free. And how does Jesus do it? He does it by the words he speaks. This is what's portrayed in the book of Revelation later on. That Jesus wages war with a sword in his mouth. Not in his hand. Jesus doesn't go in there and attack the leader. He liberates the leader by casting that demon out of him. And the people in Capernaum were amazed by the authority that Jesus had. Authority in two ways. First of all, Jesus was doing this amazing thing of teaching, preaching with his own authority. Instead of saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, Jesus would just stand up and say, I say. And sometimes he would even do this. You have heard it said, and he quote from what we call the Old Testament, but I say to you, whew, that's a dare, that's, that's, that puts pressure on the hearers. So if somebody says, Moses has said this, but I'm going to say something else, then you have to decide, well, who is this guy? I mean, does he have authority to do that? So they, they were amazed that he spoke from his own authority because Jesus is the word of God, Amen. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus doesn't have to quote the Word of God. He is the Word of God. He speaks with his own authority, and then he casts out demons. He has so much authority that he just speaks the Word, and people are set free from demonic powers. And this this is what first caused his fame to immediately spread throughout Galilee. There's this new rabbi... He has miraculous powers, he heals the sick, he teaches with authority, and he even casts out demons. Even demons obey him. All right, so let's look now at the second time that Jesus enters the, a, uh, uh, the synagogue. This is, that was the first time. Here's the second time. This is in chapter 3. By the way, uh, we're not going to go through every chapter, so just relax. You'll be out on time. It's all right. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue... And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Who's the accuser? All right, and so if they're wanting to accuse, what what spirit are they under? Spirit of Satan. They're there to Satan him. And see, here Jesus has a reputation as a healer. He's a great healer. He's been healing all throughout Galilee. Now he returns to the synagogue, and there's a, there's a man there with a withered hand, paralyzed probably, or something like that. And, and everybody knows, it's, we're like, it's like a trap. And they know that Jesus is a healer, and Jesus could heal this guy. But if he heals him, that's, guess what that is? In their mind, that's working on the Sabbath. And they'll say, oh, see, you're breaking, the, you're breaking the law of God. You're healing on the Sabbath. 
That's the tension. That's the drama. Mark is filled with conflict from the very beginning. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, that is to these scribal authorities, these leaders, the scribal aristocracy, the people that were using the synagogue as their power base instead of a place of liberation for people. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. You know, there's only one answer to that question. When Jesus says, on the Sabbath, are you permitted to do good and heal and save a life? The answer is yes, but they don't answer. They're just silent. They're, they won't answer. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at the hardness of their heart and he said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians and they wouldn't be they're not natural allies Pharisees and and uh, Herodians wouldn't be natural allies but they form common cause around Jesus why how to destroy him And so you see, Jesus is staging an invasion. He's invading the house of Satan, binding the strong man and plundering his goods. But there's going to be resistance all the way through. When we get to Mark chapter 5, you have the second encounter of Jesus with a a demon. But this time it's deluxe. Seemed to be a minor case with the uh, man in the the synagogue. Jesus has crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side, which is Gentile. Western side was Jewish, eastern side was Gentile. So Jesus, in a rare moment, has gone into Gentile countries. He sailed across the sea. I mean, it's only like five miles. And he goes, he goes across the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, to the other side. And there, in the tombs, that's unclean, there is a Gentile man who's severely demon-possessed. And we're told that no one could bind him. Remember that? No one could bind him. He was a strong man that no one could bind. And he was filled with demons. And Jesus says, what's your name? And the demon says, Legion. Well, that should tip you off right there. That's a reference to the Roman occupiers. I mean, it isn't just legion. It's, it'd, be, it'd be like someone say, what is your name? And the demon says, 182nd Airborne. You go, whoa, that's connected to military stuff. And then it says, in the next verse it says, and there was a herd of pigs nearby, a herd of pigs. This is stuff I learned this week. This is fascinating. Herd of pigs was an insult that Jewish people used when the Roman legions would march through their towns. They wouldn't say it out loud for the Romans to hear it, but they'd say, there goes the herd of pigs. You know, Roman, yes, the, yes, the Roman legions, the herd of pigs. It was a subversive behind, you know, you wouldn't say, it, yes, the Roman legions, the herd of pigs, just came through town. Ah, that, that, that really sets this in a different light, doesn't it? And so, what happens when Jesus encounters this? The Roman occupation. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes to war. That's what they all wanted Messiah to do, by the way, is go to war against the Roman occupiers. And Jesus goes to war. But how does he do it? He speaks 
the word. And he commands the legion of demons to leave the man. And what do they do? They go into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? They're drowned in the sea. Remember this story, right? You've read this in Mark 5? The, the enemy, the foreign enemy, drowned in the sea. Have, have we ever heard that story before? That's, that's got a ring to it. What, what am I thinking of? When, when, when the enemies of Israel are drowned in the sea. That's, that's, that's Red Sea. We've got another Moses on our hand. Who was Moses? Moses was... See, in the days of Moses... I'm getting excited. In the days of Moses... Uh, Israel was in the house of bondage and there was a strong man called Pharaoh and he kept them bound and no one could liberate them because who is stronger who is stronger than Pharaoh but here comes Moses filled with the spirit of God and speaking the word and Moses comes as the stronger than the strong man Pharaoh and plunders his house and leads them out of bondage to the Red Sea and when the Egyptians tried to follow them they were drowned in the Red Sea and so this is what Jesus is doing except there's a big difference between what Moses did and what Jesus did what Moses did resulted in all of the Egyptian soldiers being killed who gets killed in this story? Nobody. The demons, but no people. Pigs, but no people. The man, in fact, who had the legion, is, he's clothed, he's in his right mind. And what does he want? What does he want more than anything? What does he want now? He wants to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't let him yet. It's not time for that. But it's a foreshadowing that even Gentiles who've been under the demonic persuasion of Rome, are going to want to follow Jesus. Oh, yeah, this is good stuff. I mean, let's give a hand to Mark. Well, let's give a hand to Jesus. Yeah. But I'm seeing how Mark worked his gospel, and it's pretty cool. So the climax of Mark's gospel occurs, of course, at the cross. In fact, Mark only gives eight verses of the resurrection. But it's the, it's the light of resurrection that illumines everything else. All of this is in the light of resurrection. But the, the actual climax of the story is at the cross. And it works like this. Remember in the opening line, Mark opens his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first incident recorded... Uh, regarding Jesus in the gospel is in, is in verse 14. That's the baptism of Jesus. So he opens and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First thing that we... See, Mark's in a hurry. He's not even going to give you the birth. He says, oh, we don't have time for that. He starts with his baptism. And what happens at his baptism? As he comes up out of the water, there's a voice from heaven that says what? This is my beloved Son. And whom I'm well pleased. So already right off the bat we've been told twice that Jesus is the son of God. And the drama and the tension build and build and build until it reaches its crescendo. At the crucifixion. The climax of Mark's gospel is found in chapter 15 verse 39. Now when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Remember, 
he's writing this in Rome. Mark's writing in Rome. And the climax of his entire gospel story is the crucifixion of Jesus, which is conducted by Roman soldiers under the charge of a career Roman military officer, a centurion. And there's Jesus hanging upon the cross. The centurion has been the one who has crucified Jesus. He stood there through the whole thing. He's seen everything that's happened, and now he's seen how he dies, and we're told that he is standing there facing Jesus. Jesus has just died. He's on the cross, and this Roman centurion is standing right there, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. It's a powerful image. A Roman centurion with his uniform, his weapons, his helmet, his sword, and he's standing before the crucified Christ saying, this is the Son of God. It's a powerful image, and it's prophetic, because indeed, the Roman Empire will eventually bow its knee and say, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus has come, and he has bound the strong man, and he has plundered his house. Hallelujah. So, we don't have to change the world, not directly. You should avoid that temptation. We've got to change the world. And then you start thinking about the quickest and most pragmatic way. And that always leads you to violence. Jesus overcomes violence, but not with violence. Jesus responds to the violent occupation of the Roman Empire in the land of Israel, not with violence, because that's demonic. You, you can't overcome demonic violence with demonic violence. Violence is demonic. Jesus does something else. He speaks his word. And where the word finds place, it, it, it displaces the powers of darkness, the powers of Satan. So our task is not to directly change the world. Our task is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. And let Jesus change the world. Our task is to go up to the Roman soldiers, as it were, and just hold up Jesus Christ crucified. Just hold up Jesus Christ crucified. Proclaim what Jesus, proclaim Jesus crucified. Because what did Jesus say? And if I am lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And just like the man with the legion was liberated and said, I want to follow Jesus. Now we have a Roman centurion representing the whole Roman Empire saying, this man is the son of God. And so if we're going to change the world, we don't do it directly. We do it by preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your servant.